Well, good morning and welcome to 2023. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, page 986 in our Bibles here. It was probably close to a year ago that some of the elders and uh, we as pastors were talking about it might be time for a series on financial stewardship from the scriptures. And it wasn't because of financial need. Um, God has been so faithful to us in recent years. Uh, a little before COVID, we were able to move into our building uh, expansion as God supplied that to us debt-free. And during COVID, uh, our church family has been so generous that we were able to continue ministries and restart ministries when we could. And uh, it, it's, it's not that there's, there's something, there's a great need for us financially, but it's that we need it as part of our spiritual growth to walk in harmony with the scripture principles. As it turns out, though, 2022 has kind of been rough personally for a lot of people financially. I mean, inflation, everything costs more. And uh, if you were you know, looking at your retirement funds, that all seems to be worth, worth less because of the market. And so, yeah, it seems like it's been a challenge personally because money has a way of getting our attention. And so we need to talk about it because, A, the Bible talks so much about it, and because really finances are spiritual. Money is sacred. It is one of the key ways in which God grows us spiritually, and thus the, the plant metaphor over there. I'm not starting a series on gardening. That wouldn't be wouldn't be wise at all. But God really does grow us spiritually because we are involved with money all the time. We're earning it, spending versus saving, uh, sharing it. We're, we're thinking of how to use our money best. And there's a, something that God does as we d go through that process in which he touches our heart because our finances do reveal our heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. And God is all about the heart. So this series was planned for this month of January. And uh, there was a, a part of me that thought, man, you know, as a church family, we're facing this, uh, this grief and loss. Is this the right thing to do at the right time? And yet, as we think about it, maybe we're more sensitive. Maybe more, our perspective is more eternal than ever that we would be thinking of earthly versus eternal. And I can pretty much imagine Seth saying, go for it, said, we need this as a church family. So we're going to be looking in these coming weeks at a number of Bible passages, but for each of these five messages, we'd like to look at one focused passage. And today that's going to be this 1 John 2, uh, verses 15 to 17. But before we do, I'd like us to talk about the most foundational principle of, of finances when you come to the scripture, and that is, first of all, the issue of ownership. Acknowledging that God owns 
everything, and we are stewards. So let's talk a little bit about how that is portrayed in Scripture. Psalm 24.1 says very simply, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So everything is kind of like everything. Creation establishes ownership. If you, if you make something, you do a work of art, if you created it, it's, it's yours. So the earth is the Lord and everything in it. The reality of that sinks in when we understand how long we live. And so since we don't take it with us, we are actually just managers of something for a while. And Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5, and think about this, Solomon is the richest man that probably has ever or will ever live on the planet, including the mega billionaires of today, when you think of the financial perspective. He said, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Nothing. And he's almost quoting from Job, who was also a wealthy man of his day, and God allowed him to lose everything for that season of time. And, and he said basically the same thing the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So there's something about death that proves God's ownership of everything, and that's what we have in common with people with the name Gates or Buffett or Bezos or Musk, is everyone leaves everything. So what do we do? If we are, if we are managers or stewards, what, do, what does that really mean that we do with the financial material things that we think about and accumulate uh, in, in our life? Joseph in the Old Testament is a good example of that because he was a slave. Slaves owned nothing, but he was a slave originally in Potiphar's house. And it says that Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. That's Potiphar. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So to entrust it to Joseph to manage. I'm sure that Joseph was well supplied. He could have everything that he needed to, to eat, but he actually owned nothing, and he was a steward, and that's what God's relationship is to us. He owns everything, and we are managers for him, whatever quantity that might be. So how does God view us as we have things that we manage? Second Corinthians, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's all. Now, Paul in this passage wasn't specifically talking about or limited to just financial stewardship. He was talking about everything that God entrusts to it. It's, he entrusts us with relationships and spiritual gifts and skills and abilities, resources. Money is part of that. And he's basically telling us we are accountable for everything that God says, this is what I'm allowing you to manage. He's the owner. We are stewards. And stewards are accountable to the owner. Uh, in 1989... A family in West Palm Beach, Florida, gave permission to a TV producer that they could use their front lawn as a set for a car crash scene. It was the uh, uh, brief detective series called BL Striker, if anybody remembers that one. But, um, so they gave permission, and as they were like blowing up their front lawn, there was a phone call from the owner of the house in New York. 
Because what it turns out is that it was renters who gave permission to the film company to use their front lawn, and there was an owner who was in New York who says, what is going on? You see, they would hold them then accountable because they were the renters and he was the owner. We are accountable. So the real goal of these weeks is to come to a place where we understand that we don't own anything, but we are accountable for everything that God entrusts to us for this time. That's kind of like the warning side of it, but there's an incredible blessing side to grasping stewardship as a foundational principle. The blessing is that when we begin to think as stewards instead of owners, we experience or we can begin to experience peace about finances. Uh, Because when we realize we don't own anything, we can be released from the worry of it and we begin to pray prayers about finances a little bit different. We can pray prayers like, Lord, the transmission on your car is going out, the guy says. It really, I know it's kind of funny, but it's, it really is true that you begin to think differently about it. You know, Lord, the food that you're providing for our family is getting really expensive, so thank you for, for providing what we need. And, 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 you know, Lord, the money that, that was set aside for our retirement years, it's less, so you're going to show us how you provide with less and begin to think differently because peace about money does not come from financial success. It comes from financial stewardship. And so there's a fundamental thought that do I function, think, and act as if this is really mine or is it God's? So that's where we come to this passage today because Beneath any of those financial thoughts, do I own it, does God own it, there is an even more fundamental principle that John is going to make. John, an experienced man, probably in his 80s, writing this, he says, you've really got a choice. Let's take a look at that choice, verses 15, 16, and 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of his eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who, the man who does the will of God lives, the word is actually abides forever, there is lasting Value. That's the most fundamental decision because when we love the things of this world, it will replace our love for God. A little bit of a context of 1 John to just understand this letter. John is writing to Christians. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Our, our fellowship is with, with God through Jesus Christ, and, and we have this relationship. So some of the key words of 1 John are the words fellowship, Fellowship with God, uh, abiding in Him, knowing Him. First John is really about the quality of our relationship with God. You, you have come into relationship with Him because you put your faith in Christ, and so what's the quality of relationship? Do you enjoy your fellowship with God? Because if, if you walk in the light, 
chapter 1, verse 7, you will, you will be able to have that fellowship with him. But if you, uh, verse 8, claim to be without sin and keep defending sin, that's not sin or it's not very serious sin, then you're not going to have fellowship with God. But verse 9 then says, if you, if you confess your sin and you just live in openness before God, you're going to experience his cleansing and you can have this ongoing close relationship with God. And actually, I think he was writing to encourage, if you jump into chapter 2, the three verses before we come to ours, verses 12, 13, and 14, he says, I'm writing to you as dear children and as fathers. Some of you are further along spiritually than others. But he's actually very encouraging to them about how, how you, you're, you've, some of you, have, you've overcome the evil one. The last line before verse 15 is how you've overcome the evil one. So there's been spiritual battles. You realize Satan's against you, but... He's encouraging them. I think if, if John was writing to Open Door Bible Church, he would affirm how, 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 how you love the Word of God, you serve willingly, you've made progress in some of those sin struggles, and you, you already are generous. You, you, he's not writing like in a condemning mode, like, what's wrong with you people? He's writing in a contrasting mode to say, if you value your relationship with God, you've got to understand you can't have your first priority, your relationship with money and things prior or priority. You're either going to love the world or you're going to love God as your priority. You'd like to think maybe, you know, I could, I could love both. But the first question is, are you devoted to God and do you just say that you love him? Or do you just say that you love him? Are you devoted to him or do you just say that you love him? Because to love God is to not love the world. You can't do both. You know that picture of, of the church as the bride of Christ? It's like a marriage. Marriage is very exclusive, right? Because you begin to think now in terms of this is the one person in life that I, I am eager to please. This is, this is my priority. This, 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 my husband, my wife is my priority. We're the bride of Christ. As the bride of Christ, is it our goal to please him? And John is forcing us to choose. Am I devoted to God or to this world? And when we, when we are devoted to this world, we're really saying we're devoted to self because self is always attracted to what's in the world. World uh, can sometimes mean people. I mean, John used that in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, meaning all the people of the world. But there's a very different way to use the world, and John often uses that as well. And that's when he uses the word uh, world to describe the, 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 the evil system where Satan has such influence. Jesus, three times, and John's the one who pointed it out, Jesus three times called Satan the ruler or the prince of this world. Look through the Gospel of John. It comes across three times. And in fact, at the end of 1 John, second to last verse or so, it says that uh, the whole world is under the control of the evil one, 5 verse 19. So we get it that what he's talking about is that the world is Satan's domain. There is a strategy of Satan to capture your heart. That's where we live as believers. So don't love the world because you will either be devoted to God and his plan for you or you will be prey to Satan and his playbook. And so we have to choose 
And so in verse 16, when he gets to that list of different desires, he's saying, there it is, that's the playbook, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so much of this uh, paragraph is about money and material things. It's not the only thing, but it's one thing that will test our true love for God. Just to get a context of 1 John, there's a couple other things that really can reveal if we love God or not. Jump to chapter 4, verse 21. 421. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So our relationships with one another vertically reveal if we have, uh, or horizontally reveals if we love God uh, vertically. If a brother probably refers to anyone, in other words, it's loving people you actually know. It's one thing to love the world. <laughs> Those other people, we should all love the, the people out in that other, but do we love the people we know? It's our family, it's the people that we go to church with, it's our, it's our neighbors, do we love them? Because God is testing our love for him when we have relationships with others. We need to love those God loves. Um, if one of your friends hates another friend of yours, is he really your friend? That's a test of love. Do we love others? To love God is also to obey his word. Chapter 5, verse 3. This is love for God, to obey his commands. So if we love God, we will do what he says. A child can sweetly say, I love you, Daddy. And then turn around, no, I won't pick up my toys. There's some... Got to do some work on the, on the love, what love really means. And how often does God feel that way where, you know, we can worship and say, we love you, God. And then there's something that God asks us to do, and we go, no. So do we love God? Well, if you love God, then you would, you know what, what he, you're devoted to him, his commands, his standards, his plan for your life. And so in that sense, you, you, see, how, you see how he's drawing us to say, do you enjoy fellowship with God? Do you abide in Him? Are you enjoying the relationship here on earth that God put you in forever? Well, then you need to check your devotion. Is it to the things of the world, or is it really to Him? So what in the world, back to chapter 2, verse 15, is capturing your devotion instead of God? What is capturing your devotion? Do we realize that in most of the world, for most people, money makes most decisions. Money makes most decisions. It's kind of like you follow the money. What, what do I want to do? What will I do with my time? I need money to do this, or I do this because I want money. Um, money is a wonderful tool of God to grow us. Money is a terrible master. To control us. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So he used the, 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 the work world as an example. You, you know, who's the boss? I mean, my, one boss told me this, one boss told me that. And so finally, you have to say, who is the boss? Is it God or is it, is it money? That was part of the Sermon on the Mount. John was there hearing these words of Jesus when he was probably about 20 years old. 
Now he's writing the first letter of John, uh, and he's probably about 80 years old when he's writing it. So 60 years later, he says, this is true. If you love the world, you don't love the Father. Did you realize that if we can put people in these categories, spenders and savers can both have the same spiritual problem of loving money. Spenders think like this, I want this, I think I can afford it, so I will buy it to enjoy having it. Kind of a mindset, right? I think I can afford it. It'd be really fun. I'm going to buy it. That's a spender. A saver thinks, oh, I should not buy this so I can enjoy having what? More money. So which of these could be guilty of loving money? Both, because one loves to spend it, one loves to accumulate it. Any financial advisor would tell you that saving more and spending less is financially wise, and that is true financially, but either, neither option solves the spiritual problem of loving money other than, rather than God. So is there another option between a spending or a saving mindset? Because if those are both loving money, loving the world, what's the other alternative? It's stewardship. Because a steward asks questions like, how much should I buy or save or give based on God personally guiding me because loving God is my priority. And as we focus on loving God, we ask these kinds of questions. So am I content and grateful for what I already have? Do I want this because I, I, I look better when I, when I got it, you know? There's some image issue here, or am I humble? Generous or hoarding, you know, if I, if I do this, then I would have more, but then can I, can I, can I share over here? And is, in fact, is, is something financial becoming an obsession or a self-control issue, almost an addiction issue, that there's something about money that I can either accumulate it or, 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 or spend it, and it just makes me feel better. And it's just like a, ah, it just makes me, I just have to. Is there something about money that, because of that, I will not have time to be the person God wants me to be. I cannot serve the way God wants me to serve. So when you think of that list... These are all spiritual issues. These are the areas that God's at real work in our heart. And so, but to, to make progress in these areas, we have to have a stewardship mindset. These are spiritual issues. A, a follower of Christ can't afford to simply ask the question, can I afford it? Because, I mean, any pagan can ask that question wisely enough. But the issue of a steward is, does God want me? because he may because God is a God who, who blesses every good and perfect gift comes from above James 1 and so there are many things that we are, are privileged to enjoy in the, in the center of God's will but that other times it says no because now I'm working on something about uh, contentment and gratitude in your heart or, or now I'm working on, on something about, about sharing and generosity or, or maybe it's something there's a lesson of wisdom because no actually you can't afford it because if you do then you know the, the proverb thing works. But it forces us to spiritual 
issues. And like, it's like there's no tool better than sometimes our finances to do that. So do I love God enough <clears throat> that I will do what pleases him in every area, including financial things? What's the greatest commandment of all? Remember in Deuteronomy what Moses said and that Jesus quoted later? You, will love, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And so if that is the greatest commandment that we would love God, what would Satan want to do in our world other than to distract us from the greatest commandment? And how might he use the stuff of life to lure us away from the greatest commandment? So do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then verse 16 becomes like the, the, uh, the itemized list, the bullet points. This is how it happens. This is how Satan can tempt and distract us to live for worthless things that do not last. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of his eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. So in this context, verse 14, about the evil one, and knowing that the evil one is the ruler of this world, it's really saying it's not coming from God, it's coming from the satanic system. It's diabolical. So money isn't neutral. Money is spiritual. Everything in the world. So here's kind of the list of God replacements or God substitutes. The lust of the flesh. And these are not all about money, but it's a big part of it. The lust or craving. The word lust is the word desire or cravings um, of the flesh. And the, and the word flesh really is about, generally it's about the, the body itself. What, is, what do you physically crave? And the most obvious is food, maybe. Uh, we're supposed to eat food. We're, we're designed to, and gifted by God to have food. But food is also a craving that can go badly, right? And it can result in both uh, physical and spiritual problems. I'm probably the only one in the room who struggles with eating more than I should at Christmas time. You know, for almost a week, there's this counter of stuff that just comes from, like, the sky. And it's, it's just, it's all delicious poisonous stuff, right? So we know that at some point, our food intake, while a gift, can exceed the will of God for us. And it's not because God's a killjoy about food. Uh, it's not his will that you only eat kale and egg whites, or something like that. God designed three feast times for Israel. Can you imagine the abundance? And I think sometimes that we need to see Christmas, Easter, lunch, uh, dinner, or maybe it's Thanksgiving meals. Yeah, it's, it's a time where you just enjoy, but you don't do that all year long is the idea. So, so uh, the desires of the flesh, food's an example, obviously. Sex is an obvious example. God's design, God's gift, God, it's good. Boy, can that ever go horribly wrong? And we see it all over our society. And so God very specifically defined and limited sexual relationships to a married man and wife. Any 
physical, any physical cravings can replace our love for God. Uh, food, sex, alcohol, obviously. Drugs that can be used as, as medicine and, and just you know, help you through something has become, becomes addictions that destroy huge chunks of our society. So those are body cravings that we can love and they exceed or actually violate God's will for us. Lust of the flesh. What's the lust of the eyes? Some have maybe applied this also to sexual lust, but I think that's been pretty much covered in the first bullet point of the lust of the flesh. What's the lust of the eyes? It's what you see that you gotta have. You gotta have or you gotta have more. The lust of the eyes. Envy and greed. They kind of go together like kissing cousins there. That you, you, you want something, you see somebody that has it, and so it's the, it's the car you, that someone has, it's the house they have, it's the the income you want, the nest egg, the vacation, the, the whatever it might be. The, I, I, you want to have that. The lust of the eyes, craving for what we uh, don't have and maybe shouldn't have. The first sin. First sin ultimately was pride in Satan. But when he came along to test Adam and Eve, he, he tested them with what they wanted and the only thing they could not have. They had a whole garden. Everything was fully supply. And Satan comes along and says, but what about that? Can't have that, huh? And it worked. And uh, they saw that it was desirable. They wanted to know good and evil like Satan promised. This is what it'll do for you. And uh, they took it and they ate it. You know the name Achan from the fall of the walls of Jericho and God gave them that first city of defeating that first city in in the land of Canaan. He's going to give them the whole promised land. He said that first one, dedicate everything in it materially to me. Don't take it for yourself. And Achan saw those bars of silver and some garments. He took them and hid them under his tent. Had to have it. He studied in Kings, Gehazi was the servant of Elijah. And Naaman, after God, Elijah healed him, Naaman said, hey, here's silver and garments. That was the thing, garments and silver. He says, I, Elijah says, nope, no charge. This is God's miracle. And Gehazi thinks later on, man, that was crazy of Elijah. And so he goes around him and, and manipulates and lies, and, and he gets some. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, he was called the keeper of the money bag. So he, he, kept, the, he kept the books, he kept the money that people donated. In fact, John 12 says that he took some of it for himself. Interesting, Jesus even knew it and let him get by with it. And he never over, Judas never overcame his greed. And so when he betrayed Jesus, it was for what? 30 pieces of silver. And they all paid a terrible price. Evicted from the garden, Achan and his family stoned to death, Gehazi, leprosy, Judas committed suicide. And what could, it, what could it have been? If Achan had waited, God had a 
place for him in the promised land, fully supplied vineyards, houses as a gift. He missed out. Gehazi could have spent the rest of his life in ministry seeing more of the amazing miracles that hardly anyone has ever seen. Serving Elijah. Judas wasted his opportunity to be one of the 12 apostles. I was just reading this recently. One of the 12 apostles whose names will be inscribed on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem in heaven forever. Revelation 21, 14. What are we trading away? If we don't see money as sacred instead of it being our master. If we don't function as stewards instead of owners. John has one more category, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and then the pride of life. Seems to be a, an outflow of, of maybe both of these categories, but it's an arrogance about money and possessions and probably status. It's a unique word that uh, John uses. This word for pride in, in the New Testament uh, Greek language only is used twice in Scripture, and both times it's about, it's about finances. Here's the other time that uh, this word for pride is used. James 4, now listen, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. We all get it, right? So in other words, if you did succeed, you don't know how long you'll live to enjoy it. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, and sometimes it is, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, he, he said, I, I know your attitude. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. That's this word, pride of life. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's the arrogance of, of thinking we are so smart financially. We got it all figured out. I know just what to invest in. And do you suppose, do you suppose that God allows financial struggles and economic downturns and so forth to help us simply realize we're not in control? And in that sense, maybe 2022 has been a really great year financially if we realize that we are not in control and there's something far better than financial prosperity because these three things are not from the world, but they're from... They're not from the Father, but they're from Satan's world. Of course, the problem is not money, right? We'll see that passage at some point here. It's the love of money. It's this devotion to money. We will learn in the process of looking at scriptures of how God has provided, how God provides for us financially, often blesses us financially, and why. And, but this fundamental decision is, first of all, do I love God wholeheartedly? So that every other piece of my life, including finances and material things, falls under the, I will do, I want to please God with it all. So the bottom line, verse 17, is the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives or abides forever. So what we crave in this world, the, 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 the three bullet points, right? Those cravings that distract us from our love for God all have an expiration date. They all become sour milk. So if we achieved our financial goals, just like the plan, if we were able to check every box on our bucket list, 
buy everything eventually that we ever hoped to, it's all going to poof. If, if not our enjoyment of it somewhere before we die, at least at, when we die, it doesn't last. <clears throat> it's like investing in blockbuster video. Enron. Bitcoin. Or is that getting a little close? You know I don't have to live that way, investing in things that go poof. It says the will, the one who does the will of God lasts forever. In other words, there's, there's, a, there's a lasting eternal value to the way they invest everything, gifts, opportunities, relationships, money. It's going to last. So do you love what you cannot lose? Or do you love what you absolutely know you will lose. Pursuing God and His will. If you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you will want to do with your heart, soul, and mind, and body, and time, and resources, that which will last forever. You know, many Christians have studied Scripture for financial principles, and there's so much financial wisdom, but unfortunately... Many times Christians study the scripture for financial principles with the goal of getting more money. And it might work. But if our goal is simply to study scripture, financial principles, to get more money, we may simply become a wealthier Christian with an unchanged heart and more stuff that'll go poof. Or does God transform our heart so that at the end of life there will be more of that which has lasting value? That is God's goal. The man who does the will of God abides forever. So that when we do change our address from Wisconsin to heaven will we have invested in that which lasts forever in every sense missionary Jim Elliott wrote something to himself in the early 1950s as he was preparing to be a missionary and some of you may be acquainted with this quote he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose you see, Jim Elliott was aware that as he was preparing for missionary work, he was entering a ministry that had huge risks. Uh, he was going to be reaching the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And these were people who were untouched by civilization and were known to be hostile to those who tried to contact them. Jim Elliott was 28 years old, and he, along with four other missionary men uh, were speared to death at the beginning of this effort to reach these people. He became a missionary martyr. Was Elliot a fool? He would say, not at all. Though it was tragically sad, he left behind a bride of four years and a young daughter. Uh, sad beyond understanding. But his brief life yielded amazing impact. For one thing, eventually, those 
that tribe of people was reached, and his murderers actually became believers and part of the body of Christ. And the story of their uh, sacrifice actually helped inspire a whole generation of the next, the next generation of, of missionaries. We don't keep our life. We spend it doing something. We live, we die, and if we're believers in Christ, we'll be forever in heaven. But he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So the question we need to ask in these coming weeks as we look at these scriptures is not necessarily how do I follow God to get the most money or even just about managing, but rather what is God teaching me through the, the economy of financial, the financial world that we live in. That's the journey I want to talk about because if loving God's the highest value, then pleasing Him in everything leads to loving something that we cannot lose but will last forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are uh, living in a very tangible, physical world and you, you intended that we would live uniquely in a world that is uh, captured by whatever the, the trend or desires or economy or status or acclaim or affirmation of others looks like. And, and we all want it. We all feel it. We have the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. But we're not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a Savior from there, and we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us transform our mindset so that we could invest our entire life in that which lasts, and that those financial and material things will be part of that economy that we know will last forever. In Jesus' name, amen.